It's time for the Off the Mound with Ryan Dempster podcast presented by Sloan. I'm your host, Ryan Dempster, and today we're joined by former big leaguer, 12-year career, two-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glove winner, and current lead studio analyst for MLB Network, Harold Reynolds is stopping by. But first, we got to tell you about Sloan's no-touch hand-washing technology. It's state-of-the-art, second to none in a league of its own, and couldn't come at a better time. So we want to thank them for providing that technology to the people out there so we can wash our hands and stay safe. Well, this guy, he's got a vault upstairs, folks. A ton of stories, a ton of knowledge, and we're pumped to catch up with this guy. So let's get right down to it and go off the mound with Harold Reynolds. As we celebrate Black History Month, I couldn't think of a better guy um, to, to go down trips down memory lane than you, Harold. Thanks so much for joining us, pal. Thank you, my Canadian friend, Mr. Dempster. Uh, it's so great to see you, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, what are you doing these days uh, to keep busy? I mean, other than uh, seeing your mug on the hot stove every morning. Well, that's about it, doing hot stove. But, you know, we got a snowstorm that hit us out here. I think it's about 24 inches right now, and it's still snowing, called the good old nor'easter. Now, am I out there shoveling snow? No, but, I mean, it's still keeping me busy watching it fall. Uh, and then the, I guess the main thing, though, is the kids are home doing school. That's enough in itself. I'm surprised it's quiet in here right now. It's a grind. I've been talking about it with a lot of the guests. The, the uh, at-home schooling and monitoring all that is, uh, I'll tell you what, man. I don't know if I could ever be a teacher. That's some tough stuff right there. I, I tell you what, all they got to do is say, we're not coming back. They can get paid anything they want. Every parent in the country will give them, what do you need? What do you need? You know, um, I, I said it off the top. I, I, I'm so like honored to have you on to talk about um, Black History Month, and more importantly, the, the history of African-Americans in the game of baseball. Um, you're extremely knowledgeable about it. Your connection with the... Uh, the Negro League Baseball Hall of Fame with Bob Kendrick there. You guys um, do a ton of stuff. Chicago. Obviously, there's um, huge history there with, with black players in the city of Chicago. Um, what sticks out to you most when you think about, um, you know, kind of the city of Chicago, the Cubs, and, and black history? Well, Chicago, you know, my dad grew up in Chicago out by California Avenue out that way on the south side. And uh, he was a, a bat boy for the Negro Leagues. They played a lot of games at Comiskey Park uh, when he was a kid. So as I got older, more into my 20s, he started telling me more about the Negro Leagues. And it seemed like there was kind of a little bit of a bump uh, when I was in the big leagues of people talking about it because I came across Buck O'Neill, who you know real well. In Kansas City, we play the, the Royals and Buck O'Neill was the first black uh, Scout in baseball, first black coach. He signed Ernie Banks. So those are things that flood in my mind when I think about Chicago baseball. And Ryan, I got a trivia question for you. Who made the last out at Comiskey Park? Yeah, I did. Oh, Comiskey. <laughs> you made the last out at a lot of parks, Harold. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're funny. That's true. You talk, you talk about Buck O'Neill, like what a, a legend himself. And then for him to be you know, the first black scout, and then to sign Ernie Banks. Um, you know, talk about how, how did that happen? Where did he find Ernie, and, and how did he go about getting him to come to Chicago? 
Well, Ernie had played for the Kansas City Monarchs. Um, he'd signed and played um, with the Monarchs. And so Buck at that time had, had was moving on to be a, a scout for the Cubs. And he got a chance to talk to ownership with Chicago and said, I, I got this kid. I'm telling you, you need to sign Ernie Banks. And he talked Ernie into coming to Chicago to work out. And before you know it, he ended up signing with the Cubs. And so that's kind of where that was from. There is no Ernie Banks in Chicago without that relationship with Buck O'Neill. And if you just look at that generation of players um, in, in Ernie's generation, from 1949 to 1959, when Ernie Banks won his last MVP, he'd won 58 and 59. For that period of time, when Jackie Robinson won the MVP in 49, eight of the next nine, eight of the next 10 players came out of the Negro Leagues. Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, uh, I talked about Ernie Banks already, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, all those guys had come out of the Negro Leagues and had won the National League MVP. So that was the impact that those, those men like Buck O'Neill had on that generation before them, which was Ernie Banks, Willie Mays, Campanella, uh, Don Newcomb, and that, and, and that sort. So they had a major impact, and it was just a pipeline of players coming through, and, er, and uh, Buck was able to snatch Ernie and put him with the Cubs. How important is it now that um, you know Major League Baseball is recognizing the stats put up in the Negro Leagues for the for the Hall of Fame? Because you know when you you had a guy on that list you talked about, and that's Willie Mays. And mm-hmm. Willie Mays, when he was coming up, everybody talked about Willie Mays being the next Oscar Charleston. That uh, just shows you how great of a player that Oscar Charleston was. The fact that Willie Mays was being compared as the next him. Man, I'm just so impressed you know who Oscar Charleston is. I mean, that is impressive, and that must mean you must have been in the Negro League Museum and hung out with Bob Kendrick. You've done your homework. So Oscar Charleston was this left-handed hitting center fielder, and, I mean, you nailed it. But um, how important the records are, I got a chance to, to talk to Larry Lester, and he's the guy more behind the numbers. He spent basically 50 years searching down genealogies, uh, going to old Negro newspapers, all black newspapers, and studying box scores and tying them to stories and different things like that and tracking down the numbers. So they recorded all the league games. They played about 70 to 90 games in the Negro League. So he recorded, they, he found all the records of the league game performances, whether it was Satchel Paige, Cool Papa Bell, Oscar Charleston, who you talked about, Willie Wells, uh, on and on and on. All these guys played in the league. And he was able to get those numbers, go through the papers, tablet, put it together, put it on the computer. Uh, it's amazing. So he is probably overjoyed now that those numbers are now uh, been archived, but those men are recognized for their accomplishments in that league as now as major leaguers. And the last thing I'll throw it back to you real quick, Ryan, if you think about the collection of the athlete in the Negro Leagues, Think about this in 1920, when the league started by Rube Foster in 1920. That was the year that you start looking back. There was no NFL. There was no NBA. There wasn't anywhere else to go. So you got all the best athletes you could, and you played baseball. So imagine the players that you and I have come across through our years, whether it's Michael Jordan or Bo Jackson or or – uh, whoever it might be, Jim Brown, or whoever, they had to all be baseball players 
if they want to be a professional athlete. Pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you look at what Bo was to me, you know, growing up and in my lifetime, the greatest athlete I ever saw. I mean, his ability yeah. to do things and the stories that you heard, countless stories that you heard. And he was playing two sports at, you know, all-star levels at both of them. So um, you're, you're exactly right. And I think it's just really special that they're doing that. One guy you mentioned on that list, Cool Papa Bell. And Tony Taylor was my infield coach when I was with the Florida Marlins. And he always talked about how fast Cool Papa Bell was. And I, I would joke around. He's like, he's like, he's so fast. He's like, when he's in the bedroom, he turn off the light. He get to the bed before the light go off. That's how fast Cool Papa Bell is. And, and, and yeah. somebody like you, who's really, really fast to hear stories <laughs> like that, that's probably somebody, man, I would have loved to seen him go out there and steal bases because nobody could catch him. One of, one of the greatest treasures of my life is I got to spend time with Buck O'Neill. And Buck, every time I came to Kansas City, he'd come drive his big old Cadillac, wheel it in there, and he'd come pick me up, and we'd go to lunch, and we'd sit down, and he'd tell, I'd, tell me another story, tell me another story. So he'd just tell me stories about these guys. So cool Papa Bell, since you brought this up, I said, so how'd that come about? Well, he's faster than the lights before the light switch goes off. He goes, he used to have a light that would go zzz, zzz, zzz. Remember, you think back in the 50s movies, you see, and the lights don't go off like they do now with us. And he figured out he could be in bed before the light went out. And so one day he had Satchel Page and Buck up to his room. And he said, hey, I'll bet y'all a quarter I can be in bed before the lights go out. And they're like, a quarter? That's a lot of money back then, you know, 1940s. And they're like, no way possible. I'll take that bet. So they bet him. He flips the light switch. He jumps into bed. The light's going, mm -hmm, and then it goes off. He says, see, I'm faster than the light. And that's how it all came about. <laughs> faster than the light. And smarter than Satchel Page and Buck O'Neill, he had a he pulled one over their eyes right there. And uh, we've been talking about other ball players, the the great Negro League uh, players, uh, players of MLB in the Hall of Fame, all those guys. But I want to know about you, Harold Reynolds, for the <laughs> fan out there. How did it? How did baseball start for you, HR? What did what led you to baseball? Mm -hmm. How'd you get into it? Well, I'm the youngest of eight kids. I uh, grew up in Corvallis, Oregon. I have four older brothers, so we played every sport. We lived across the street from the Coliseum at Oregon State University. So we used to be on campus constantly all the time. So for me, uh, it was more following my brothers around. And basically, my summer job was keeping stats for them playing wiffle ball in the backyard. We used to go over to this uh, family called the Becks, and uh, we used to call Ma Becks Backyard. So in that backyard, Ryan, you won't believe this, but my oldest brother, Don, played in the big leagues. My brother, Larry, he got injured in the minor league ball, but he's in the Stanford Hall of Fame for football and baseball. Um, Dave Roberts, not the, the, the Dodgers Dave Roberts, but 1974, Dave Roberts went from the campus on the University of Oregon, number one pick in the country, next day starting at third base for the San Diego Padres, straight to the big leagues. He's back there. Mike Riley, who was a coach at Nebraska, Oregon State, San Diego Chargers, he's in the backyard. Gary Beck, who ended up being his assistants, and Jay Losey and Ken Swire got drafted by the Yankees. All these guys are in the backyard playing. And I'm keeping stats. Me and my buddy Kurt Kemp, who was uh, with the San Diego Padres now, but at one point was the farm director of the Braves, who had Freddie Freeman and, and Jason Hayward when they were coming up. You believe this? What was in the water? Wow, dude. In Ballas, Oregon. 
But my favorite story, my brother Larry grew up with a guy who used to like animate everything all the time. He'd draw the cartoons, right? And one day we're like, you guys see The Incredibles yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. Well, Brad Bird did The Incredible. Brad Bird grew up in our, in our group. He, 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 was, he created The Incredibles, Incredible 2, did Mission Impossible, The Simpsons, Iron Giant. He was in the backyard. I mean, it's like nuts to believe all these people came out of Corvallis. And I'm leaving people out. That's, that's just incredible, that, that you know, uh, fountain of talent, whether it was baseball or writing or whatever it was. Um, when you first sign and, like, you know, you're – you you get now all of a sudden you're playing and like you see the people before you that did all that was that was there any pressure with now being the younger guy like oh man I got to keep up with all these all these studs out there no I never looked at like pressure but they opened doors for me because it made people yeah. come around and oh here comes another kid here comes another one so they got a chance to see me a funny story though um, when I got to big league camp my first major league camp my oldest brother Don had played with the Padres and. He was Ozzie Smith's roommate. Dave Winfield was on that team, whatnot. So I'm playing spring training, and we're playing the Padres. And we're the home team, and we're the the visiting team. So the Padres in, they're coming in, they're jogging out the field, and I'm jogging out to my position, and I jog by Dave Winfield. He stops and goes, what? What are you doing here? (laughs) Like, hold on, what are you doing in the big leagues? I just saw you in the clubhouse a couple of years ago. It was, it was pretty funny uh, to see. So when you're coming up and you get all these different guys you grew up around, they're shocked to see when you're actually arriving. So that was, that was part of it for me. Dude. And you get, and then on top of it, not only, you know, you get to the big leagues, but you come up with the Seattle Mariners, you know, growing up in the yeah. Pacific Northwest, you know, thank God the tickets were free back then to leave for your family because that could get pricey. But what, what was that like being able to be close to home like that? Because, you know, I, I know how much, you know, you love your family and being being around family is important to you. So to be able to be, you know, the starting your career and be that close to home must have been pretty special. Yeah, it was special. It was better at the beginning of my career than midway, because once once I started playing every day and get a little popular, it's like, y'all got to quit coming. You can't just come in and out of the house anytime <laughs> you want. And I, I mean, I'm not kidding you not. You know this because you left tickets before. But I've been standing out at second base, like third inning, and go, oh, I forgot to leave tickets. Yes. <laughs> I've done you know that, that so dude. many times, dude. Like mid-pitch, <laughs> I'll have my glove up. I'm halfway through a wiggle, and I'm like, oh, darn it. You know? <laughs> so growing up like three hours from Seattle, I had – that's just family, but I had high school friends. Everybody came up every weekend and, you know, people want tickets. Eventually, I had a two-phone system. I had one phone that would ring and I'd be like, okay, that's family. The other one over here is people I grew up with. So I'm not going to be able to answer that one right now because I know what they're calling for and I'm out of tickets, you know. So <laughs> it was it was pretty funny, but it was it was great. I mean, to grow up in, in the Northwest and play in Seattle, it, it was fantastic. Um, you grow up, you know, you're coming up with the Mariners. We see it every once in a while, right? Like right now, Mike Trout is our generational player, the once in a lifetime yeah. that comes through. You got firsthand experience of playing with that guy and watching what he did on a daily basis. 
Talk about Ken Griffey Jr. and what that was like to watch him burst onto the scene and then just not disappoint. I mean, he lived up to every expectation he had. I mean, it, it's – I always tell people he wasted three years of the big leagues by going to high school. He was that good. <laughs> I mean, he was that good. He came up 17, he gets drafted, and he came – you know how the first-round pick comes and works out with the major league team and – you're like, oh, let me see what this kid's all about. You know, and we all grew up watching his dad play with the big red machine. But Ken was bigger. He walked in, he's 6'4", and he's skinny. His dad was probably, you know, five, is probably 5'10", 6 foot maybe. Ken's 6'4", legitimately. And so he walks in, he's got this big old afro, and he's got this smile, and he's just a loose kid. He hops in the cage. What? 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 Going upper tank like. He's 17. I mean, to the point where the other team stopped to watch batting practice. And so he goes to the minor leagues, plays a little bit that year, turns 18 in the summer. And the next year he comes to spring training, and he's the best player on our team. He's 19. He breaks with the big club. And I'm telling you, Ryan, playing with him every game, I quit watching. I would stop and watch Ken instead of going into the gap to set up for a relay. I would watch him sprint. People forget how fast he was. His arm might have been better than his power. I mean, it was crazy the ability he had. He just he just did something every night that you just were like, you got it. I've never seen that before. And so by the time he's 22, 23, he is the best player in the big leagues. And he's Mike Trout for this generation and beyond Trout because – Mike Trout couldn't throw like Ken. He didn't defend like him. Mike Trout can hit, but Ken didn't strike out like that either. You know, so it was it was just it, it was ridiculous watching him every day and playing with him every day. Yeah, it was like I got a funny story for you. Yeah, I got a funny one real quick. I just thought about it. I was talking to Alvin yeah. Davis the other day. Alvin was our first baseman on on those teams. Who, by the we way, I together. loved Alvin Davis. I absolutely, he was like one of my favorite players. So just you bringing the name up, smile on my face right away. American League Rookie of the Year in 1984, Alvin Davis. So Ken, he would like every day he'd come out and hit a little extra early all the time. He loved to hit it, go there early. And he had these earrings and his, and his hat backwards. You know, that was, this is like, wasn't Vogue then. Mid-80s, that wasn't what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be like this, structured, come in and play the game how we tell you. You know, here's Ken, earrings, head backwards, just hanging out. And so he used to not stretch during batting practice. He'd walk around, and he can talk trash better than anybody. And, and we'd be like, Junior, you got to stretch, man. Does a cheetah stretch before he runs after his prey? That was his favorite line every day. <laughs> so, so Woody Woodward, our general manager, he's, the manager can't get Ken to pay attention, so the GM – gets me and Alvin, the two team captains, and we walk into the family room right off of the, the clubhouse, which most teams have. We walk in the family room with, with the GM, Ken's sitting in there, and in walks his mom, Mrs. Griffey, called her Birdie. So Birdie sits down, and she's kind of like, what's this about? And Ken's sitting there, and Woody walks in and says, hey, I called this meeting. Uh, I got two guys here, most influential on Ken, and uh, Mrs. Griffey, uh, we just can't get him to stretch. Ken's 20 years old, right? We just can't get him to uh, 
He'll listen to rules. He won't take the earring out, and he wants to do the stretching and batting practice. And she goes, well, all I know is you created this monster because he listens to me when he's at home. And she gets up and walks out. <laughs> and me and Alvin look at each other like this, and Ken puts this little grin on his face like, yeah, what y'all going to do now? <laughs> then he left. That was it. We never mess with him again. Just go play, man. He was so much fun to watch. The, you know, the highlight really was every night. And he always, I, you know, have a chance to play with him in, in Cincinnati. He had just such a great sense of humor and, you know, quietly humble at times and then not so quietly at other times. He was. Uh, oh, he, he you was, know how loud he was. I forgot you played with him. He, he was loud. He was loud. You got the injured Griffey days. So he wasn't as fun and upbeat in Cincinnati as he was in Seattle. But he's, he's, he's amazing. He's a great guy. We had a good group there. We brought up, brought out the best in them, I think, with with Booney and Casey <laughs> and Danny Graves and all of us. We we definitely you knew if he was loud, you walked in the clubhouse and it was loud. Junior was playing a game of cards, so you better be ready to to well, dip into your. Well, I, I know anybody who was on the team with you, uh, they had to keep their guard up because you were going to make sure they stayed loose. There's no doubt about Always. it. Um, this this year, HR. Before we let you go, I I just I I, I have to ask you about this because I know you spent time with them. You have a plethora of friends in the game um, from when you played and afterwards. You have that infectious personality and you're around very special people and you have a chance to, um, you know, interact with people that not everybody does. Um, in 2020, we lost a lot of people. And recently we just lost, you know, the Hall of Famer, one of the greatest uh, men to ever play the game, Henry Aaron. Um, yeah. Hank Aaron passes away and he leaves beyond a legacy, incredible, incredible stuff he did, not just on the baseball field, but um, in the world, civil rights leader, um, everything he did to better society. What are your memories of Henry Aaron um, and what Hank Aaron was able to do and any interactions that you had with him that you could share with us? You know, I, I, I knew him for about 30 years. Um, I got a chance to really uh, see him a lot in the last 10 years at the World Series, particularly after uh, they named the Hank Aaron Award, and he'd give that out every year to the winner of the award. And when I first met Hank Aaron back, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I remember thinking, oh, wow, he's going to be real grouchy. That's all I'd heard about. He's bitter. All the stuff he's gone through has really made him bitter through the years. And so I was expecting this guy that's going to be grumpy and bitter. And you know how old people can get at times. And he was the sweetest man. And so eventually as I got to know him. I ended up asking him a lot of questions of what you went through during the home run chase and civil rights. And, you know, I even got to the point where I was like, I heard, you know, people said you were going to be, you know, you're, you're bitter about this. No, 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 I'm not bitter. Nobody gets to do the things I got to do. And so he would just share so many anecdotes. And, and my last times with him, we did an interview with him, but the last time I saw him in person was at the world series. And, I get a chance to snuggle up next to him in, in the commissioner's suite and we'd talk baseball and he'd be telling about pitches and I'd ask him about what he did, how he approached certain things. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful person. I'm going to miss him uh, dearly, but uh, I, I, I treasure my time with Hank Aaron and Ryan, you know, in this, this job that we have, we call a job uh, in this life of playing baseball and being around it. You meet so many people. And 
as we've gone through this, the, the, the guys passing away this year, Don Sutton, Lasorda, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, on, on, on. They're not just names in your Rolodex anymore. They're people you knew, you know, and you have a yeah. story about. Yep. And, I mean, Don Sutton was the first guy I faced in, in the big leagues when I got to Major League Spring Training. And I remember standing there, and I, it took three or four pitches before I went, hold on, I'm supposed to hit this guy. Because I was sitting there going, that's Don Sutton. You know, I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing. You went through it, but when you first get to the big leagues, you're facing men that you've watched and admired your whole life. And so in these latter parts of being broadcasting and being able to spend time around them, you get to see what made them who they were and the character of who they became and just a person. And when it comes full circle back to Hank Aaron, uh, it just, the knowledge, everything you hear about the man, uh, what a tribute the, the the world paid to him this year, uh, this last couple of weeks. And it was well-deserved, special, special guy. You don't say this about many people. I'll throw this back to you on this. But, you know, you look back at his career and you look at his numbers and what he was had accomplished in the game, and you go, you know what? He might have been underappreciated. It's hard to say when the guy's got the numbers he threw up, but he might have been overlooked. Sad to say. And to do all of that against the struggle of people against him, rooting against him just because of the color of his skin, it really, really yeah, is remarkable what he did. I can't imagine. I, I said this, um, it kind of jumped out at me. When you start thinking about the times that he's in, and you know, he had over 300,000 death threat letters, and, and I heard he read most of them. 300,000. And he'd be standing on the on-deck circle, and not knowing if he was even going to get shot at. Ralph Gar told us a story that Hank would go stand at the other end of the dugout. And finally they were like, what are you doing? Come down here with us. And he's like, you guys don't need to be near me. Uh, you never know what might happen. That's what he's thinking in a baseball game. And so when you think about the time that he was in, he'd already seen two Kennedys assassinated, Martin Luther King assassinated, Malcolm X so when people gave you death threats back then, that was real. And he took yeah. those things to heart and really understood this might happen, but I'm still going to go for the record. Amazing. The courage and strength of that man. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's baseball games going on up in heaven, but if there is, Tommy Lasorda just walked into the league with a, a pretty loaded team. And he said, hey, you guys aren't going to stand much of a chance. Um, a, a special man who left lasting memories on a lot of people myself included. Um, and thanks so much, HR, for, for joining us. Uh, just an absolute treat to sit down and, and tell some stories, listen to your stories, and uh, just a pleasure having you on with us today. Uh, you are my favorite people. You know, you call, I'm here. Thank you, Ryan. You're doing great. I love this show. Thank you. Hey, it was so great to catch up with Harold Reynolds. I'll tell you what, I always leave conversations with him with a smile on my face, uh, a little bit smarter. Um, and definitely with a little bit more knowledge of the game. Uh, nobody does it like HR. To hear more conversations like the one you just heard, please download and subscribe to the Off the Mound with Ryan Dempster podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and it's all presented by our good friends at Sloan. Thanks so much for listening, folks. I'm Ryan Dempster. Have yourself a great night. <laughs>